Well, it's exciting for me to be able to share the platform with our Maranatha gang this evening, and I think you'll you'll uh, want me to say how well the choir did up there. They did very well tonight. Maybe they should come back and sing again sometime. Uh, it's great. Uh, thanks very much for taking part, those who have taken part already. And Nate, these are the notes. You want to come up here? <laughs> I did offer him before he sat down, and he said no then as well. I thought I'd give him another chance. Not that they'd help him very much. I wanted to read where we read this evening from Acts chapter 20, so you may want to find that passage again, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And uh, we're going to be coming back to this chapter next week to look uh, more closely at it. But I thought this evening we would look at one aspect of what is going on in this chapter. Artists have tried to capture some of the great farewells of history. I don't know if you've seen the great uh, painting of George Washington as he says farewell to the troops of the Continental Army as he goes to retire to his private life at Mount Vernon. It's a most moving picture. Uh, a similar picture is that of Napoleon as he says farewell to the old guard who've been with him from the beginning of his career. In both the paintings, what strikes you is on the faces of the men as they look at each other, the great general and the troops, is the sense of shared experience, a sense of camaraderie that they've had as they've fought together, and the sorrow, the grief of parting. And something of that is captured in this chapter, in the story of Paul's farewell to the elders at Ephesus. I have to say that it, becomes, it comes as part of a series of such great farewell addresses at transitional moments in the history of God's covenant people right from day one. Uh, the first one, of course, is, is Jacob, as he says farewell, in a sense, passing on the baton of leadership from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the tribes of Israel. Moses, farewell to Israel before they go into the promised land. Joshua's uh, charge to the people before, as they enter the land and as he passes the baton to the judges. Samuel, the last of the judges, and his farewell speech at the appointment of Saul as king. All of those great farewells mark transitional points in the leadership of the people of God. The greatest farewell, of course, is Jesus' farewell to his disciples, to the apostles in the upper room. When he promises them, you remember that he won't leave them as orphans, but he'll send the spirit of truth to them, and the spirit of truth will remind them of everything Jesus said and did, and everything that Jesus wanted to say and couldn't, and would tell them things to come. Those apostles, in a sense, now come to their climactic moment where Paul's speaking, in a sense, on behalf of all of the apostles, here, now at this transitional point in his ministry, having worked with the Ephesians, he now passes the baton of leadership from apostles to elders in local churches to carry on the work of God. We're going to look at that next time, but that's the background. What I'm interested in this evening, and I thought would be good for us to look at, especially when our Maranatha young people are here with us tonight, is to look at the what we discover in this farewell of what is the heart of the Apostle Paul himself. 
We know what he's interested in, and we'll, we'll pick that up in a moment, but I want you to notice that what he's concerned about, did you notice in the language that he uses, he's concerned to affirm to the people that he's leaving what they already know about the way in which he had served, and uh, what that service entailed. And he, in the course of giving this farewell talk, refers to how he served, what he served, and why he served. And those are my three points this evening. First of all, he mentions how he served. It comes in the middle of a fast-moving account of the gospel's advance through the world by the apostles. And every now and then, Luke slows down this fast-paced story in order to let us hear what is being said by some character in the story. That's his way of giving us a kind of theological and intellectual hold on what is going on in the story. The story goes so fast, you need these points of slowing down and listening so that you get to know why it is we are where we are and where the story is going. This is one of those points. It gives, us an, it gives us an insight into the doctrine and teaching of the early church. And what this narrative does, this farewell speech does, is tells us that Paul saw himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus. And he tells us in his report that he had served with great energy in the work of serving Jesus. These apostles were incredibly busy men. The apostle Paul is a busy man. At this point in his career, he has already set himself a deadline of getting from where he is to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Between Pentecost and Passover was a period of seven weeks. He has just celebrated Passover in Philippi, and since then, three weeks has already passed. Seven days for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, five days to cross the Aegean Sea, seven days at Troas, four or five days sailing down the Asian coast. He's so anxious that nothing keeps him back that he decides he's not going to visit them in Ephesus, but he sends a message and says, why don't you come and meet me at Miletus and there I'll spend some time with you. You can imagine the energy that the Apostle Paul has, and he's pouring this energy into the gospel work that he's involved with. And it's at this point of energy in serving Jesus that very often we're tempted. Other people come along and they say, you're doing too much. You're working too hard. You're going too fast. You need to slow down. You need to take time out. You need to watch the grass grow. You need to take a vacation. Take a day off. There's always people telling you that kind of stuff. But what the Apostle shows us is that when you're serving Jesus, there is no vacation time. There is no time to yourself. It is all about serving the Lord. And he serves him with great energy. And he serves him with great focus. Look how he describes it in verse 19. He says he was serving the Lord. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time I was there from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. How was he serving the Lord? We know that he was serving the Lord bivocationally. He was supporting himself and the other workers by doing the trade that he learned. He was doing that day by day in order to provide food for them to eat and clothes for them to wear. But he was also doing gospel work. 
He was working bivocationally. He didn't always do that, but he did on this occasion. And in, in doing so, he is imitating the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus said that he had come not to be served, but to serve. Paul looked at Jesus as his model. He had come to serve. And you notice what kind of service that he's doing. He's serving the Lord, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is big. He's bigger than eternity, bigger than the universe, bigger than space and time and history. The Lord Jesus is big and he's serving under the headship and the leadership of the Lord Jesus. And he's risked a lot to do this, but he does it with joy because he's serving Jesus. And he serves the Lord, you notice, with great humility, great energy, great focus, great humility. He says that. What is this humility? What is being humble and lowly, as he says here, serving the Lord with all humility? Well, first of all, humility involves a feeling towards God. A feeling towards God that God has absolute rights over us. Absolute rights over your time, your life, your decision making, your vocation, what you do with your life. God has absolute rights to do with your life as He pleases and as it seems fine to Him rather than fine to you. It may seem fine to you, and that's good when your fineness and God's fineness come together. It's even better when God's fineness becomes your fineness when you submit to God's will in your life. And for Paul, his humility not only meant a view in relation to God, it also meant something in relation to other people. He felt indebted, not only to God, but to other people for how graciously God had treated him. For the Apostle Paul to serve the Lord with all humility meant this. It meant the opposite of feeling that everybody owes you something. Owes you a listening or owes you strokes, owes you time. Of course, there are relationships in life where people do owe you something in response. That's true. But in this kind of relationship in which Paul's describing, it's driven not so much by what others owe you, but what you owe other people. You know, one of the great dangers, if I can just put a caveat in here, of Christian workers, whether they're missionaries or ministers, or Sunday school teachers, or Maranatha leaders, one of the great dangers, a temptation is, that we get to thinking that people owe us something, rather than thinking, what do I owe these people? What do I owe them in Christ? What do I owe them in the gospel? Paul could say, I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish, to friend and foe. Humility is the right response to the mercy of God that pours out, pours out its life without thought for its own well-being or comfort. Pours out its life for in the interests of the people of God. He served with great humility and he served with great tears. I imagine the tears are often connected with the trials that he went through, and he went through many trials as a loyal servant of King Jesus. He doesn't remind them specifically of what these are, but you notice he reminds them of the dangers that he went through. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he refers to this time at Ephesus, and he says, Humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. 
I don't know what he meant. But I want you to compare that phrase with Acts chapter 20 verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And that from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. He now sends, says to these church leaders, you're going to fight with beasts, fierce wolves. Men who teach false teaching, false doctrine, who will subvert themselves even into the leadership of local churches in order to lead the people of God away from the things of God. He says to these people, remember what Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There are some people, when they hear the message of the absolute claims of Jesus Christ, over their lives or when they hear the truth as it is in the Bible become animals in the way they react to the truth of God he served with great tears and he served with great confidence great confidence look at verses 22 to 25 you notice he's describing the uncertainties of the future he says I just don't know compelled by the Spirit I'm going to Jerusalem I don't know what's going to happen to me there I only know that everywhere I go, people are telling me, they're telling me wherever I go, that there's going to be prison and hardships facing me. That's what I know about the future. That's what everybody's telling me. They're telling me they're being given words from God, and the words from God are saying it's prison and hardship. Prison, hardship, prison, hardship. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that involves. I don't know what the hardship involves. I don't know what the end will be. Will the end be my death, my martyrdom? I don't know. Paul says, I don't know what lies ahead. But he says, I do know this. You notice the confidence he has. I do know this, he says. Look at this. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I can finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Says the apostle, that's all that counts. All that counts is that I finish what I've started. My confidence is in, in this, that no matter what else happens to me along the way, this is where I'm putting my gaze, my focus, my desire, my ambition, my longing of my heart. It is that I would finish the race that God has laid before me. Brothers and sisters, this is a model for Christian living and service, isn't it? This is what it's all about. I consider my life worth nothing to me so long as it is poured out into the service of God and of God's people. That's all that matters. God and God's people. This man is absolutely captivated by the grace of God. He is captivated by these things. Martin Luther was captivated by this thing. You remember when he's on trial for his life at Worm in Germany, he's told not to go there to Vermin, and he said to his friends, listen. I will go there even though there should be devils on every, on every housetop. I'll go there. One of the young men who went to, to take the gospel to the Auca Indians in Ecuador, uh, who lost his life along with all the others, wrote this. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dead asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But a flame is a transient, often short-lived thing. Can you bear this, my soul? Short life. 
Yet in me dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for the house of God consumed him. Make me your fuel, flame of God. Make me your fuel, flame of God. Let me be consumed with the work and service of God. That's how he served. Great energy, great confidence, great tears, great humility. Then secondly, what he served. I really thought this was going to be a very short sermon. I'm sorry. But I'm going to give you the next two points in two minutes. Well, five minutes. Okay. What he served. I want you to notice what he served. He served people, yes. But I want you to notice what he served people. He saw himself as a servant. What does a servant do? When you go, to, you go into, for, to a restaurant, somebody comes and they serve you. What do they serve you? They serve you what they bring you. They bring you food. They put it on the plate. They put it in front of you. You eat the food. This is how Paul saw his job. Do you, want, do you notice what he says there? He says, uh, I did not shrink from declaring to you. Here's how he sees his service. This is what he was doing. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. In other words, I didn't hold back any truth that you needed to feed your soul, to nourish your soul. Didn't hold back anything. He wasn't one of these fair weather preachers, you know, who studied relevance so that he would be able to tell people what they wanted to hear. He wasn't one of these preachers who decided beforehand what his people could take and therefore measured out to them in small medicine size glass amounts the kind of the amount of truth he thought they were able to stomach he wasn't that kind of preacher i did not hold back from you anything that was profitable for you he says i, I gave you it all i've declared he says to both jews and greeks that they must turn to god in repentance and have faith in the lord jesus christ that was a simple application of his message Turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that's the bottom line. How do you become a Christian? You turn to God in repentance and you have faith in the Lord Jesus. Bottom line appeal. Bottom line response to the gospel. But he says more about his message. Look at verse 24. I received from the Lord Jesus grace, the ministry, to testify to the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. This is one of only two times the word gospel is used in Acts. It tells us the heart of the gospel is the grace of God. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. God's free love shown to undeserving people. Then in verse 25 he calls it proclaiming the kingdom. This links his teaching with Jesus' teaching. It stresses the fulfillment of God's kingdom purposes in the person of the king. Jesus is the king. The king has come. The king has arrived. The kingdom has already burst into the world. And he says, I did this. And I proclaimed it. And I taught it. I, I, I used a variety of methods. There was the passionate preaching and there was the patient instruction. 
I did this in public, that is in, in exterior areas, in public arenas. But I also did it in the churches that were meeting in those large homes, the homes of the wealthy, where the churches, the congregations met. I went to those congregations and I preached and I taught. And I preached and I taught it to Jews and Gentiles. I was indiscriminate in the work of the gospel. What did he serve? He served the word of the gospel. He served the truth. He served the message we preach. And then lastly, he tells us why he served. Look at verse 26, 27. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The language taken straight from Ezekiel the prophet, where God gives a solemn charge to his servant the prophet regarding his responsibility. God compared the prophet to a watchman posted on the city wall. His job is to be on the lookout for enemies, an enemy attack. When danger threatened, it was the watchman's job to sound the alarm. Then it was up to the citizens how they would react to the alarm. If they ignored the alarm, they only had themselves to blame. The watchman had done his job. He was innocent of their blood. But if the watchman slept on the job, if the watchman was diverted from his task, if the watchman decided to go home one night rather than do his job on the wall, then he was in danger of judgment, Ezekiel says. And he was therefore guilty of their blood if the enemy came on his watch and destroyed them. Paul says, that's how I see my gospel work. I see it's a sacred charge given to me. I see it's a sacred charge that I must keep. When I was ordained, we sang a hymn, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky, to serve my present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do the Master's will. He served with every ounce of energy he had. Whatever you do to the Lord, do with all your might. Do with all your might. He served the Word. The Word of God is what nourishes the souls of God's people. And he served because he knew there was a day coming. There's a day coming for every Bible teacher, every pastor, every minister. There's a day coming when we're going to be answerable to God for what we taught people, for how we taught them, for how carefully we taught them, how we instructed them the things of God. It is a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you teach the Bible to anybody at whatever level it's at, let me tell you, that is a great responsibility. It scares the living daylights out of me. It gets me up in the morning and gets me to the Bible and makes me work on the Scripture. And it should have the same effect on all of us. Because we're all going to give an account for what we've heard or for what we've taught. And says the Apostle, that's why I do it. I do it because I have this inestimable privilege of being a watchman for God's people. I have this inestimable privilege of looking out for their welfare. 
I have this inestimable privilege of handling these precious truths when I preach a whole counsel of God to the glory of God for the good of the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that as we think of this ma magnificent man, the Apostle Paul, who you used so powerfully to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, and in many ways we who are Gentiles here in this room owe it to him and to the energy that he poured into that amazingly dynamic short life. And we pray, Lord, that we ourselves in this great gospel work that we do together, because we do it together. This is never a one-man thing, a prima donna thing. It's never the business of a few. It's always the body of Christ. It's a church. It's a people of God together. We do this. And we are responsible corporally together for the witness of this church to this metropolis in which we find ourselves. We, we are part we're part of this great thing that's going on and together we commit ourselves tonight once again to being those people who serve the Lord gladly with all our being to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' strong name, amen.